You are listening to a Hillbilly Horror Stories classic episode. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. What are you doing here? Don't you know Jerry and Tracy live here? and welcome to episode 83 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry and I'm joined by my lovely wife, Tracy. Hey guys, hope you had a great weekend. And man, if you guys are into Bigfoot stories, this is not the episode for you because we're not talking <laughs> anything about Bigfoot oh, this dang, episode. no Bigfoot, but we did buy a King Kong for my nephew today, a present, <laughs> if that counts. No, it doesn't. Oh. Um, of course, we want to start off by thanking all of our military and civil servants all around the world, no matter which country you represent or work for. Thank you guys for and gals for everything a- that you absolutely. do. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Did you see the, the uh, I showed you a video the other day. It was a lady who was trying to get man taken out of our um, dictionaries and out of our verbiage because she said that that was discriminatory against women. I will punch her in her face. <laughs> All up in her face. Just please get a life. Jesus, Pete. Ugh. It was kind of funny to hear her explain it. Ah, oh, whatever. She's whatever. Which I do understand. Postman should be postal worker because there are women, and I could I, that part I understand. But she that, see, that she didn't even like the fact me. that man was in the term was in woman. Well, it's been that way for a bazillion years, so you just need to get over yourself. Well, there's a lot of things that's been that way for a bazillion years. It doesn't mean we don't change. Well, that is just ridiculous. I swear, I wish she was in front I, of me. Granted, right I think this one is ridiculous, but I don't think that's the reason to do it. Just because something's been well, that I way mean, forever. I hope, I hope that they don't do that because if they do that, <laughs> then it's done. I'm just gonna go live in a cave somewhere, eat chocolate, and drink wine. Live in a cave. I will. You had problem when the electricity goes off and there's no internet for 15 minutes. Well, that's beside the point. I'll make it work. Anyways, let's uh, jump real quick into our iTunes reviews, and then we'll tell you about the story we got going on. Tracy, would you like to read the iTunes reviews? Oh, I knew you was going to have me do that. I would love to. (laughs) Okay, this first one, I'm I'm sure that I'm not going to get it right. It's (laughs) Cassinars. See, I'm not going to spell it, honey, because I didn't want to mess it up. C-A-S-S, stop laughing at me, Jerry. N-A-S-R. Thank you so much for your review. Pinup Girl, Shaggy from Paranormal Guys, 
Sid, 1313, Stone Ubert, Joho125, exclamation point, and Kate N. M. Kate. You guys, I love y'all. Y'all gave me such nice reviews. We appreciate everything you say. We just love you. And we had some Patreons, subscribers, Chris Savoy, 74, Buddy Kuchta. I hope I said that right. And Jen Woods. You guys rock. Thank you so much. We appreciate you guys more than you'll ever know. And again, I hope you all keep those reviews coming because it gives me something to look at while I'm at work. And Jen Woods, she jumped in with both feet because not only did she become a supporter, she's already been on our Patreon listener stories yes, episode. So if I you're know. if you're a subs- uh, subscriber to that and you've heard the, the March version of listener stories, you've heard Jen yes. on there already. Yes, we were really Glad to have her, and she did a great job. And we had several problems with <laughs> an entity not allowing her to do that, the... That entity was rude. Yeah, that's... A, so if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you didn't get to hear this. So Jen calls to tell us her story. Her and her mom are both uh, certified parapsychologists, and they've got a connection, we'll say. They kind of know what's going on mm-hmm. with each other. They've just got that you know extra intuition. And Jen's telling me the story about an entity in her house that her and her mom had both seen that probably is a little more on the evil side. About three minutes into it, as soon as she starts talking about it, it just cuts off recording. (laughs) The phone call, the phone call cuts off and she's just talking away on her end, not realizing that we're not on there and we're not recording. I hate when that happens. I tried to call her. It wouldn't go through. This was like on Facebook Messenger. So it's not like a regular, you know, getting a busy signal. And we finally got a hold of each other. We talk. We get off the subject. We're talking about something else. As soon as I bring up the fact that the phone cut off, guess what happens? Yep, again. Phone cut off again. So she had another story that actually tied into Grant Wilson because she'd done some stuff with uh, the Ghost Hunters on a little, um, couple little, I think a Civil War fort and uh, a house that they did an investigation on with the Ghost Hunters. And I wanted her to tell that story since we just had Grant Wilson on. I thought it'd be a good tie-in. And... There were so many difficulties. We're like, hey, maybe we'll just shoot for doing this tomorrow night. <laughs> and she actually drove to her mom's house away from her house where this so-called entity is just to be able to make sure that we got the interview. And then we had no problems at all yeah, whatsoever. I know. That's that so night. crazy. It was so, funny. Yeah, I've never had so much trouble <laughs> trying to get one conversation done. And, you know, we did several, We did other interviews that night and, yeah. had, and really had no issues. Right. So. Yeah, it was really crazy. But, man, I hate that when you're just talking up a storm <laughs> and then you're like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, it was <laughs> such a, it's like your air goes out of your she, balloon. And when we called her, she was like, I, I'd already finished the story and everything before I realized you wasn't even on there. And we were only like three minutes in. Oh, my gosh. It's like so a 15 minute story. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I kind of teased you a little bit by saying there was no Bigfoot on this story. And uh, I wasn't kidding. There is no Bigfoot on this story. No. We are going to have some Bigfoot or Dogman. We got a bunch of stuff working. We're trying to branch out and make everybody happy. And uh, we know that some of you out there are really into cryptids, so we're going to work on some of that stuff. And we've got some, we've actually got a lot of experts that are kind of local to us. I know uh, the there's some dogman groups that are in Ohio that cover a lot of Kentucky and Ohio and Michigan stuff. And then uh, we met some, some people, Steve Coles from, uh, uh, what's that network? Destination America. <laughs> it's, it's really bad that I should know that thing. But he's, from, he's with... Uh, 
same group that Jack Kenna's with, mm-hmm. and he's he's literally a Bigfoot expert, and oh, he's yeah. a wealth of knowledge. Had fun talking with him. I'm going to get him on, so that'll cover a lot of our cryptid stuff. Uh, UFOs. We get people ask us all the time about UFOs. We know my thoughts on UFOs. I'm not all that excited about it, so it takes a unique story for me to do it. But what we have on uh, Tonight's show is actually about the Aztec UFO incident, which to me is more UFO slash cover-up related conspiracy theory type stuff than it is just UFO crash. That's the part that I really like about this story. Okay. Also on tonight's show, we have Chris Christopherson on the show. He wrote uh, Me and Bobby McGee. Stop. Well, who's on the show then? It's not Chris Christopherson. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is he dead? Well, I hope not. I just did an interview with him. <laughs> but he's going to be sad to find that out. Oh, I, I think he did die, though. I don't think Chris Christopherson is dead. Oh, you don't think? I thought he did. No. I like well, him. Well, who's the interview with? Rob Christopherson. Oh, my gosh. I cannot say that word. Well, who the hell's he? Rob <laughs> Christopherson. Oh, my gosh. What can I say his name? I don't know, but I'm highly disappointed now. So what does he do? He came on your show. <laughs> <laughs> we're just playing with Rob. Yeah, we're Rob, playing. Rob is actually, uh, he's got a show out, and we, we actually heard him because uh, we played the promo for it a couple weeks ago. Yeah. It's got Our Strange Skies, and he we talked about him a lot, I think, on last week's show. Awesome show. Uh, he breaks down UFO stuff without going you know too much into just the details of a story right. uh-huh. like we're going to do tonight. He just basically uh, breaks a lot of stuff down and makes the average person who may not know a lot of this stuff feel like they are really on to the no because he he breaks it all down to where anybody can understand it yeah he really does but he came on the show fantastic interview and uh like i said i like giving him some crap but (laughs) it's definitely rob rob christopherson it's uh your your y-e-r ufo guy on uh, twitter yeah it's very interesting what he had to say so have you listened to the interview stop it Yes, I have. Okay, so let's jump right into here (laughs) and mention that Our Strange Skies is actually part of the Dark Myths Collective, which a lot of great shows you could check out. Another of which is uh, Hysteria 51, which you heard the promo for earlier. Look, I found this absolutely fascinating. And the reason I did this story is because when I got through talking to Rob, I was like, hey, I'd really like to do a UFO story that most people won't know about. Everybody knows Roswell. This is actually really close to Roswell, time and location-wise. And he said, hey, he threw a couple of suggestions out, and then at the end he was like, hey, have you ever heard of the Aztec UFO crash? And I'm like, no, no. never heard of it. He said, dig into it. I think you'll find it fascinating. And I can tell you this. For somebody who's not really that big on UFO stuff, I probably went down more rabbit holes with this story than any story we've ever looked into. How come I didn't get to go around a rabbit hole? Well, because, you know, rabbit holes are built for one, and that would have been two. So well, I don't you love, know. If, you always leave me out. I don't know if you stuff. know the rules of rabbit holes. I don't. And plus, you don't like carrots or I celery. And you got to like celery to go down a rabbit hole. Okay. I don't know. I think it's state law. Anyways. <laughs> what the hell? So, <laughs> so Rob tells me this story, and I sent Rob a message on Twitter later in the week. I'm like, basically damn you because <laughs> i spent so much time looking at all these things and i really didn't know where to start there's so many different angles on this thing that this if we ever did a show that would have been two parts mm-hmm. it would have been this one. Oh, but i'm not going to do that uh i decided to 
I guess Reader's Digest uh, compress it yeah, yeah, and try to get it all in there. So I think you'll get the gist of it. I could really be really boring with this oh, by no. going into a lot of details, and I'm going to try not to do that. So that was my goal is let me give you enough details without going too far in depth because okay. this thing was like follow the bouncing ball. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's so many twists and turns, and that's what makes the whole thing exciting. So let's jump into this thing. So supposedly this happened on March 25th, 1948. Eight months after the Roswell crash. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody knows about Roswell. Oh, yeah. So the story is, and I'm, I'm going to just be really brief with this, and then we're going to get into details. But the story is that there were three different radar units that were set up in, at three different locations in New Mexico. One of them actually uh, had this abnormally strong radar, which radars are all microwaves. Mm-hmm. So you could just... Think about what microwaves do to your food, mm-hmm. so you'd know what this will do. But all these radars are basically made of microwaves. One of them was super strong, and it had some type of effect, I guess, on a UFO that was coming by, and it kind of maybe knocked out the central system, control system, and this thing immediately went haywire, making the flat object go out of control. It crashes on the Mesa right there in Aztec, New Mexico. There were 16 bodies found on board. <gasps> Aliens? Aliens. Well, I mean, I doubt that they would have been, <laughs> you know, <There's>... Californians or, <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> oh, my God. How exciting. So, all the rest of the story, though, is absolutely fascinating. And I can tell you that after hours of research on this thing, I'm still kind of on defense mm-hmm. as to what I believe about it. And I, I wouldn't have thought that as much research as I did, I would I wouldn't have at least picked a side. But did all, I, all the aliens die. Can we get into the story? Yeah. But yes, they were all dead. Aww. <laughs> yeah, let's get in. So the first thing was, I had to figure out was this a hoax? Mm-hmm. Because for years, that was the thought. It was a hoax. Is it possible it was just a huge cover up? Well, that's the other side of the, the, the fence to be on. So I'll tell you what I know, and then I'm going to let you make your own decisions. This story can be very confusing depending on what side you choose to view it from. So let's cover the hoax side first. Frank Sculling, which I think that's, if I'm, I'm going to guess on this, I don't know, but the X-Files was Scully and Mulder. I'm pretty sure they probably came up with her name based on this guy. Oh, I was it's like, just, why does that name too, sound familiar? It's too much of a coincidence. Okay. But Frank Scully... Uh, was a very famous writer at this time. Uh, he was an accomplished writer. He wrote for uh, Variety, which was, I guess, a newspaper mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, he eventually wrote a book in 1950 that had four UFO crash stories in it called Behind the Flying Saucers. Many considered these stories fiction and based loose, loosely on eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. But most people just full, you know, assume he's full of crap. So here's the story. According to Scully's informants, this silver disc actually landed on the Mesa and was basically just under 100 feet, which I think is funny because it was 99.99 feet. And if you're listening outside the United States, that's about 30.5 meters. How are you going to act like you know what meters are? I looked it up. Oh, well, I was going to say, you did not know that. <laughs> Go ahead. It was made of a light metal that kind of resembled aluminum. And it was so durable, though, that no amount of heat would actually damage it. Oh, it, wow. They used up to 10,000 degrees, which is 5,500 Celsius. Good job, babe. 
to this thing, no, no kind of damage was done. They even tried to drill it with a diamond-tipped uh, drill bit, but it had no effect on it. And if you're in a foreign country, it's a diamond-tipped drill bit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, force habit. So it it, it had these it had these large metal rings on the inside of it that revolved around like a central stabilized cabin, and it had this very unfamiliar gear ratio to what anybody had seen. So this is how the thing flew. It was this thing, in this, these rings inside, like a magnetic type situation would uh-huh. spin. And somehow or another, that was like the motor to the thing. Oh, that's so crazy. There were no rivets. There were no bolts, no screws, no sign of welding. This was one continuous piece of metal as it looked from the outside. Oh, my gosh. So the only damage that they could see was like there was a crack on one of the portholes. So think like uh, a ship, mm-hmm. like a cruise ship with the, the holes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The windows. So there was a porthole. But um, after making this crack that they seen that they're kind of making it a little bit bigger they could look into it and see there was a knob on the inside so they had a pole they inserted it into the hole and pushed the knob this caused a hidden door to open up they found 16 small humanoid bodies inside the aircraft they ranged in height from 36 to 42 inches that's <laughs> 91 to 106 centimeters <laughs> they were a little bitty they were uh they were Dead bodies, and they were all burned oh, no. to a dark brown color. Oh. So Scully was actually told that the aircraft was undamaged primarily because it landed under its own control. So this was not like a crash. This was like a soft landing. So nothing like on the inside was... No, there was no damage to the inside whatsoever. So this is where, once again, the microwave thing maybe comes in, uh-huh. which... I don't know. So you think that's what killed the aliens then? Well, I, I don't see... If from, from this side of the story, I don't see what else it could have been. A band, yeah, okay. You know, or maybe maybe the fracture caused some kind of air inside. Oh. And they, I, I don't know. No, yeah. I, no idea whatsoever on that part. So investigators actually discovered that it was uh, manufactured in segments. Once they actually started digging into it, they had these little grooves that, you know, the segments fit into grooves mm-hmm. and then underneath it... The, uh, the base that they were all kind of pinned together. So they completely dismantled this disc. The complete cabin, which uh, they said it measured 18 feet in diameter, was, and that's about 5.5 meters. They lifted it out of the saucer. There was a gear around the cabin, which fit into a gear that was on the ship. So that's where the, I guess, the gear that, mm-hmm. for the functions and stuff, was on the outside. So that could spin around without the cabin spinning around. All the segments and the bodies were transported to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is in Dayton, Ohio. You're <gasps> close to where our live show will be. What? Where our boys from Ohio are. Nice. Some of the bodies were later examined by the Air Force, who said that they were similar to humans, with the exception, get this, you're going to like this, as their teeth were pretty much perfect. See? Why is this considered a hoax? Well, Scully admits that the bulk of his information for this book came from two sources. Silas Newton and a Dr. G, we'll call him. And we're going to get way more into this stuff a little more. This is just the basics of the story. Now, Silas Newton is described in a 1941 FBI report as a wholly unethical businessman. Dr. G, which I said we would get into, is the name given to supposedly... Eight different scientists 
It was like a collective name. So they just, he called him Dr. G, but it was really eight scientists. Mm-hmm. But to protect their names, yeah. he just used that. Uh, all of whom gave various details to Newton and Scully. So these scientists all supposedly had been there. They give the information to Silas and Newton, and he writes the, the book about it. Now, most say that Dr. G was not eight scientists, but a man by the name of Leo Jabauer, who was about as unethical as uh, Silas Newton, according Uh-oh. to everybody else. So, Quite you know, you, crime, huh? right. So during the late 40s and early 50s, Silas and Leo actually traveled through Aztec attempting to sell um, these devices known as doodlebugs. Okay. Which that sounds, you know, nice and professional. That these, sounds cute, though. Well, these devices supposedly used alien technology to locate oil, gas, and gold. So, supposedly, the technology came from the information from these scientists, so they used these to make these devices. Now, they were selling these detector-type devices um, for $18,500, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, you could buy these same devices in like a, a surplus store for $3.50. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so this alien technology came from the crash in Aztec, supposedly. Now, J.P. Kahn, who's a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, he asked for a piece of the metal so he could research it, and he determined that it was just an ordinary piece of aluminum. Or if you're in England, aluminium. Aluminium? In 1949, Scully started publishing a whole bunch of different columns with these stories on the crash uh, of Aztec as told by Silas and Leo. He later used these um, columns to decide to write his book, Mm -hmm. Behind the Flying Saucers. Now, Khan exposed this as a hoax in 1952 and 1953 with two articles that he wrote from True Magazine. And we're going to get into a little more about Khan and his involvement in this. He even went as far as to write J. Edgar Hoover a letter about all this before he wrote his articles, who was in J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover was head of the FBI. So oh. he wanted to make sure that this was got, you know, was out there. So one of the people, did I mention, I, I might've jumped place, but he wrote these two articles in true magazine mm-hmm. is where he, he wrote them to expose them. Now, one of the people that was duped in this whole thing by buying one of these, uh, what they call tuners, doodle bugs was a, a guy by the name of, Herman Flater, he was a millionaire from Denver, and he pressed charges, and Silas and Leo were actually convicted of fraud-related charges. So then, after that, everybody called the case a hoax. Mm -hmm. So we see what's going on. Let's rehash this a little bit. So this guy writes a book. He tells about the crash. He was told about the crash from these two guys and supposedly eight scientists, but most people think it was just these two guys. And these guys were trying to sell stuff that they said was made from alien technology to help you find oil and stuff and was making a fortune off of it. So how credible were these guys? Plus, these guys already had a rap sheet for going back and and duping people for even years before that. So I guess nobody knew that. uh, I mean, I I guess some people did, but it's not like they had the Internet to look stuff up. We're talking about 1948 to 50. That's very true. So... It just makes sense that there's no reason to believe any of this because right. the two guys that were behind the story, and at this point, everything we had was based on these two guys. They were con men that were duping people, and it was all hinged on the fact them saying they had this alien technology. Yeah. So it would make sense that since their doodle bugs were fake to begin with to well, most people, then obviously they were just lying. Well, they should have pulled out one of those little alien dudes 
and well, said, see? Well, they didn't have one of the alien dudes. They oh. were selling doodlebugs. Oh. Not alien dudes. Oh. So there we go. Problem solved. It's a hoax. Fraud well, is not good. Is what you're trying it's to say. It's not necessarily true, though, that this was a hoax. Because first of all, we talked about Khan actually... Um, writing the articles to disprove this and, yeah. and expose them as a hoax. But there's a lot of people that actually say that he was pissed off because he wanted the story and to want to run it in the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh, yeah. They chose to turn around and give it to Scully, oh. who then wrote a book about it. So they think that maybe just because of a case of sour grapes, basically, he turned around and wrote these articles exposing them. So the story actually stayed dormant for years, but in 1986, so keep in mind, this was like 1953 when it was exposed as a hoax. So you're basically looking at 33 years later in 1986, a guy named William Steinman and Wendell Stevens, they actually wrote a book called UFO Crash in Aztec. In 1998, Linda Mouton, how, who actually, she's a UFO expert, and she was also a regular on uh, Art Bell's shows that uh, we've talked about coast to coast Mm -hmm. on here so long, she'd been on there. And she actually said that she had government documents that proved the Aztec crash. So now, 30-some years later, this thing is starting to grow legs with the uh, the book that uh, Steinman and Stevens wrote and with, with Mouton Howe actually coming on and saying we got stuff. So the years have passed. More and more evidence has actually come out to suggest that maybe there is a lot more truth to the story than many thought originally. And that's where we're going to yeah. pick up. And I mean, I know this is dumb to say, but isn't it weird that just people will pick up something that happened 30 years ago? Most people are just like. Well, and that's the whole thing. You know that's, and that's what people would hope is sometimes these things just die down and nobody brings away. it up again. So let's go back a little bit um, and start talking about what has come up since then that leads people to believe that maybe this was a giant cover-up. So in 1974, there was a professor by the name of uh, John Spencer Carr. Now, part of this evidence included testimony from a senior U.S. Air Force officer that was supposedly involved in the uh, uh, UFO retrieval. Mm -hmm. The FBI was definitely interested in what Silas Newton actually had to say about the whole incident, especially you know, considering that they deemed it to be a hoax. On March 8, 1950, Newton did a lecture at the Denver University. Now, he was actually billed there as Scientist X, not as Silas Newton. The lecture was actually attended by the FBI, or at least monitored by the FBI, because they released an urgent teletype uh, on March 9th from the Denver FBI office. Oh. So it just kind of lets you believe that maybe... There was more to it. So why are they monitoring what he has to say about it? Exactly. So here's what the, um, here's what the actual teletype said. Two sources advised that Silas Newton has given at least one and possible more lectures before classes at Denver university yesterday or today in which he discussed flying saucers, which he allegedly observed. The person claimed to have seen several objects, uh, of which landed in New Mexico he also claimed to observe occupants of the saucers described by him as humanoids, but around three feet tall. Now, Newton had actually been escorted to this lecture by a staff member of the Rocky Mountain radio station named George Kaler. Within two hours of this talk, U.S. intelligence officers were already asking 
uh, Kaler questions about the lecture and um, what his opinions were yeah, of right. it. Kayla recorded these um, interrogations, basically, and then at the end of the, these interviews, he was told, hey, we know that you recorded these, so we need you to hand the tapes over. Oh. It's an awful lot to go on for something that's a hoax. I know. What the heck? But you know what? I mean, seriously, they're three feet tall. What are they going to do to you? <laughs> Why are you focusing on that? I don't know. That has I, I nothing guess... to do with anything. <laughs> And you're like four foot eleven. I so know, I feel tall. I can overcome them. Sorry. So soon after the Kansas this this whole thing, a Kansas City car dealer uh, by the name of Rudy Flick, he started telling stories. But Kaler supposedly crashed the gates at one of these radar uh, stations near the New Mexico and Arizona border, and he had seen two flying saucers that the military actually had in their possession. He said one was badly damaged, and the other one was virtually intact. Once again, the FBI stepped in. And this is from that FBI teletype. According to the info given to Kaler, around 50 of these flying saucers have been found in the U.S. over a period of two years. Of these, 40 are in the U.S. Research Center in Los Angeles. Each craft had a crew of three people on the two that were in question that he said he saw. The bodies in the damaged ship were actually charred, and the uh, aliens that were in the ship that was in pretty much perfect condition they're, they were in a perfect state and uh, of preservation, but they were still dead. So that was the situation with them. All were uniform height of three feet, beardless, and their teeth were free of any fillings or cavities. They wore no undergarments, but their bodies were taped, and they were dressed in some sort of a wire. So I guess their whatever their uniform or something was was made out of wires. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Mr. Fick feels that the security department of the military fear that the sudden shock of a surprise announcement from the inter- about you know this interplanetary travel is possibly could cause mass hysteria. So the OSI District 13 will interview Flick. The editor of the Kansas City Star stated that he was well aware of the story that um, was going around, but they don't dare publish this in the paper because of, it was way too fantastic. Oh. So this comes straight from an FBI teletype. Oh gosh. There's so much we don't know. This is so crazy. Now, there's a partly censored FBI document on March 22, 1950, that shows a story very similar to Fix circulating in Washington, D.C. Mm. So that means more than one person actually was reporting these same things over and over, which makes it more likely that something was going on. Now, some other evidence that can be attributed to William Steinman in 1987, we talked about his book a little bit earlier. He claims that when the crash happened, that the info was immediately sent over to the Air Defense Commander and General George C. Marshall, who was then the Secretary of State. They then contacted the MJ-12 group, that that was a military group, as well as the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit of the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Directorate. The IPU worked out of uh, Camp Hell in Colorado. Supposedly, the IPU, which is the Interplanetary uh, Phenomenon Unit, their main function was to deliver disabled or crashed disc to a secret location. Oh, wow. So the craft was actually recovered within hours by the IPU scout team, 12 miles northeast of Aztec. General Marshall ordered air defense to go off alert, and uh, he basically said that the radar units had advised that they had a false alarm. 
No way. Yeah. They did not. Yeah. So Marshall then gave the order to um, commence or to, for the IPU to organize a recovery team and contacted a Dr. Vanavir Bush, who was the head of the MJ-12, to gather a team of scientists and to accompany the IPU to the crash site. He went on to name all of the scientists, which I'm not going to name here, mm-hmm. but there was a bunch of scientists strictly by name. Four of them were actually members of the original MJ-12 that was set up in 1947, which, keep in mind, was just a year before this crash. Dr. Carl Hyland was a geophysicist and a magnetic science expert, and he is one of the supposedly uh, scientists that leaked the details of the recovery to Leo Jabauer. So we talked earlier about they Mm -hmm. had this. So now what we're starting to find out is that maybe this Leo Jabauer and... um, Silas weren't really as full of crap as they made it to be, and they were actually being leaked this information. Mm -hmm. So, but we're going to get into a little more of that and how much was actually true that we find out as we as we move on to the story. But the IPU used a route to the crash site to avoid um, the main road, so they kind of took some back roads because they didn't want to be seen. Roadblocks were set up at strategic points around two miles of the recovery area. And the owner of the ranch and his family were told never to speak of this matter. Oh, my Lord. Equipment hauling trucks were camouflaged to look like uh, oil drilling rigs during this operation. And the scientists arrived later than the IPU team and began uh, dissecting the disc. They entered into the craft one by one. The same way that was explained earlier, uh, according to Scully's book. The portholes themselves appeared to be metallic and only appeared translucent when you actually got really close to them that you could see that they were kind of see-through. Oh, that's so cool. So they did everything the way they said. There was Mm -hmm. a crack. They made it bigger. They used the pole, Mm -hmm. just like was in Scully's book. Once inside, they found two humanoids that are about two feet in height. They were slumped over the instrument panel, charred, but no sign of fire inside the cabin. Another 12 bodies were sprawled all around the floor of the cabin. So the only difference here is, according to this story, there was 14, not Mm -hmm. 16, which was in Scully's book. Mm -hmm. The instrument panel had several push buttons and levers and hieroglyphic-type symbols on it. There was a drawer that actually pulled out, but there were no wires, visible wires, that could be seen. They found a book that was like a parchment-type leaves with textures of plastic that also had hieroglyphics on them, similar to Sanskrit. Oh, that's weird. Yep. They put bodies on dry ice. They dismantled the ship in three pieces, loaded it on three different trucks with the bodies, and put a tarp over them and marked it as explosive. The convoy headed by night, by the least conspicuous route to uh, a restricted naval auxiliary airfield complex at Los Alamos, arriving at one week after they picked them up. So mm. it took them a week to get there. The bodies were actually here for a year, and then they were transported to another undisclosed base. Dr. Paul Shearer eventually obtained uh, special preservation containers for the least damaged bodies. Uh, The companies which actually supplied the equipment was the Air Research Corporation. It supplied the liquid nitrogen pump, circulation system, and refrigeration units. Sure is an awful lot of details for something that was a hoax. So the other bodies were given a complete autopsy by a team uh, handled by Dr. Bronk uh, of biophysicists. The results were actually put into a force named the Air Force Project Sign Report Number 13. 
which uh, has never actually been released. So this was not one that's been declassified as of yet. The bodies averaged, according to the autopsy, 42 inch in length and facial features resembling Mongolian Orientals with disproportionately large heads. (laughs) Large slant eyes, small noses and mouths. Average weight was 40 pounds. Torsos were small, thin, with very thin necks. Their arms were long and slender and reached their knees. Their hands had very long and slender fingers with webbing in between them. They had no digestive or gastrointestinal uh, intestinal tract, no intestinal canal, and no rectal point. That will disappoint uh, Nick from Ohio. Yes, they will. No reproductive organs were apparent. There was no blood, but there was a colorless liquid with no red cells, and it smelled similar to ozone. Oh, my gosh. Now, that's all coming from his book. More recently, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey have actually released a few books and working on a third, the first being the Aztec UFO incident. Scott has researched this craft since 1987 and is the foremost researcher in the whole Aztec incident. Him and his wife know everything and anything. Now, what took their stuff to the different level than, than the books that we talked about earlier is they actually talked to a lot of people involved. They've done so much research. When you talk about over 30 years of research, basically. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And, and Suzanne's family had moved from – actually, her, her mom and dad, I think they lived – I can't remember exactly. I'm going off memory. But I want to say they lived up in the north. Mm-hmm. And her mom read this book by Scully like in the 60s, and decided that this was sound like a really cool place to live. So they moved to Aztec because of this. What? Yeah, so they moved They wow. moved out there. They just went to, you know, but then they found out it just really wasn't all that fascinating when they got there because nobody was willing to talk about it. Right. Now, somewhere down the line, there was a, a, a convention out there, and Scott was part of the convention, and they had one of these little, um, like where you buy a ticket, and you get a chance to win a lunch with somebody. Uh-huh. and. She bought a ticket to win lunch with Scott. She actually won. And then they went to lunch and discussed stuff. And then eight months later, they actually got married. Oh, my gosh. So that's how how she came to be part of this. So he was already researching it. Her family moved there because of it. She was already fascinated. So it was kind of meant to be. Yeah, it's kind of meant to be. And so, like I said, they started researching together. And they've uncovered many different eyewitnesses that have since passed away, unfortunately. We're going to talk about some of them. So the... In the book and the interviews that they do, it makes me kind of lean towards this actually happening, as opposed to before where I was thinking, yeah, it definitely sounds like a hoax. But now I'm kind of thinking, and and you'll hear why I'm kind of getting that way, it just seems like there's a lot of stuff that all ties in the same stuff that everybody else was finding. Well, how did Scott get everybody to talk is what I want to know. Well, I don't think that he got everybody to talk. There was just a lot of people who weren't in the area anymore, and he's just done. Well, let me get into it, and I think it'll answer some of your questions. Okay. So the Ramses were actually able to talk to a lot of very credible witnesses, including those who were in the military. And part of how they did this is they spent, according to Scott Ramsey, they've spent probably close to a half a million dollars of their own money and several hundred thousand hours just trying to get these military reports declassified so that they could get their hands on them. So that's going to be part of how they were getting people to talk to them because Mm -hmm. they had this stuff in their hands. They were also able to find 
the three radar bases, which we were told it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. They literally took um, maps and said, hey, where would we place it at? And went out and searched the desert and found them. What? Yeah. They, they found, and they actually, like one of the, one of them actually had paperwork. This is going to fit into what we we're talking about earlier. One of them still had paperwork in it talking about how strong the radar was. And it even had a warning to not be using it if there were aircraft in the area. Oh, wow. I'm surprised those two didn't go missing. <laughs> right. So you can see how that fits into mm-hmm. the theory of what people have been saying earlier about it got basically knocked out of the sky because of the strong air, you know. Yeah. Um, wave that was being shot at this radar wave and yet here's something written from the military in there basically saying this could cause problems with aircraft in the area you know and why else would you have a radar i mean radar typically is to detect something why would you have something that's so strong that it would it could possibly disable an aircraft knock it out of the sky yeah you know and you know they've talked to people in in the midst and i didn't write this in the notes but they've talked to people that back during World War II, they had a similar type setup that was able to knock out 17 uh, Japanese subs. Oh, my gosh. That were using this same technology mm-hmm. in something like a, a day. One day, it knocked that, out like 17 insane. subs. So they never, um, they never had an incident then where it did knock a plane down or anything? Because if not, they're pretty lucky. No, appar- apparently not, unless you count this, because that's what everybody seems to think happened here. So we got that part of it. There's a retired Air Force officer, and they can't use his name until he's passed away because that's just the way the military works. But he actually, they told him what the situation was, and they wanted to meet with him because they knew he had some information. Now, this guy had never told his story to anybody except for his wife and right before she passed away. He kept a tight lip on what he knew about this situation. Wait a minute, he told his wife? Yeah, he told his wife right before she passed away. That's the only person he ever told the story that he, he was told. Probably like, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> what a relief to tell it. So obviously, like I said, can't use the name, but they met him at a Radisson and they showed him some declassified information. So he was felt like he could, okay, you've got some of the information. Let me expound on it. He told them that there were over 200 people that were involved in the cleanup, you know, gathering mm-hmm. all the information or gathering all this stuff from the craft and everything. Now, he wasn't actually at the site himself, but he had to write a whole bunch of uh, reports on people who were there. So he felt like he he was there by how much information he knew on it. He said that they had to cut a road that didn't exist back to the aircraft. And that road is still there today, but that road subsequently isn't on any maps. Oh, gosh. So here we are 50-some years later. It's it's still still not not on on any maps. He said, hey, if you think you got the right place... Look for a concrete slab because they needed a crane to pick up the parts and haul it. And everything back there is silt, which is like a really soft sand. Oh, so, so they would, would sink and yeah. stuff. And he said they needed something stable to yeah. put this crane on. Right. So they had to to build a concrete slab, basically, to put this crane <laughs> oh, on. Oh, man. Well, he didn't know that at the time that the Ramses had already been out there several times. So they knew exactly what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And this slab just sits in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a desert. There's just a concrete slab yeah. that serves no purpose. Now, most people, um, when you ask them, they'll tell you that it's a, like a cap uh-huh. out there for the, um, uh, gas and, and oil mm-hmm. and stuff like that. They know that's not the case because it doesn't make sense. It wouldn't be out there. That's not what they would use. Yeah. But they, to anybody else, we probably would be. Oh, right. Okay. For us. I mean, we don't know any different. Right. He said they've actually, you know, 
it would be dangerous to drill a hole in it if that's what it actually was because of build up. Oh of, yeah. And but he said they've actually drilled into it. Wasn't nothing, afraid nothing. because they knew that that was a VL oh. story. They've had it analyzed. That's not what it is. Oh my so gosh. there's no reason in the world for that to be out there. Just like there's no reason for that road to be there that. Guess where it just happens to end at? Oh. Right where the cash crash site was. Oh, my So anyway, gosh. so he tells them about this. And uh, they thought that was fascinating because a lot of what he was telling them was stuff they already knew mm-hmm. without divulging that information. So let's start talking about Ken Farley. Ken Farley is another credible witness that they were able to catch up with. Ken was 20 years old at the time. He was traveling from Durango, Colorado to San Diego. He had a friend in Aztec, so he had stopped off in Aztec at the time. Now, Ken wasn't from the area, so he didn't really know anybody. But his friend actually told him that there was something going on on Hart Canyon Road where this took place, mm-hmm. and they should go check it out because obviously there's not a lot of excitement going on. Yeah. If you don't, for people who don't know, Roswell, uh, this place, several other places in New Mexico. New Mexico is a really big state, but it's not densely populated. So for the amount of people there, there's a lot of room. Like, there's like a, a lot of empty there's space. There's a lot of empty space, a lot of desert area where there's, you know, just a lot of land to roam, basically, where, you know, that's why they did all the, um, for people who don't know, most of our nuclear testing, if not all of it, is pretty much done in New Mexico. Yeah. Because they don't have to worry about right. the population of people and doing the damage. And that's why a lot of people think... Why Roswell? Why this place? Why eight months apart? Why is there supposedly all these other UFO crashes in New Mexico? I guess if you think about it, we've done all these nuclear explosions and everything there, so there should be a lot of radioactivity in air. I guess if you were a, um, a UFO or or a um, you know a, a group of people, different species from outer space, you would maybe go where you see radiation or something like that. There, that might you know mm-hmm. if that's what makes your you know, civilizations tick or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's going to draw them there. Yeah, so maybe that's why they were drawn there is because of all the radioactivity that, that was well, in there. That so, makes sense. So anyway, so this guy's friend says, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on down at Hart Canyon Road. Let's go check it out. So let's fast forward to the year 2000. Uh, Scott and Randy Barnes actually interviewed uh, Ken in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, so this is about an hour away from where mm-hmm. um, Ken actually lived, but he drove up there. Now, it's important to note that Ken was actually dying of cancer at this time. Aww. So he was kind of on his deathbed. As a matter of fact, he died almost two years to the, le- to the day of this interview. No way. That he actually did. So the story went pretty much the way that they've known the story to be. So now you got this witness that's lining up everything that you've already pretty much heard. Yeah. But this guy was supposedly at the crash site. Now, he said... At the crash site, there were two police officers. Now, this was the only thing that Ramsey was kind of skeptical of because he knows that he had never heard anybody else mention there being two police officers out there. Mm -hmm. So this kind of stood out as, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's just making something up or maybe he don't remember correctly. And keep in mind, this is a very remote place with a very small police force. So chances are, he said, if you went out to there today and called 911, the chances of more than one police officer showing up would be very strange. <laughs> so for there to be two show up yeah. back in 1948 would have been extremely odd. So he decides, look, we'll, we'll kind of put this on the back burner. We've got the story, but let's see what shakes out as we move forward. So then 
they they get an interview with a gentleman by the name of Doug Nolan. Now, Doug actually worked for El Paso Oil Company at the time. He was 19 years old, and uh, he actually died two months after doing this interview. No. But he had, you know, had six strokes and was on his, you know. Oh, gosh. He was really suffering. Keep in mind, these guys are all 70s, 80s, you know, years old at the time. Even though they were 20 back in 1948, right. you know, by the time they catch up with them in, in – uh, I think this was 2003 when he did this interview. Mm-hmm. You know, you I do the math on it, but I know he's up there in age. Uh-huh. And somebody who's had six, seven strokes, strokes you know. yeah. So anyway, so Doug's boss had called him that morning, Bill Ferguson, and he told him that there was a brush fire out on uh, Hart Canyon Road, and they needed to get out there because the company had some drip tanks out there, which I'm not exactly sure what a drip tank is, but obviously it's got something to do with oil. Yeah, so and, they didn't want it to get out of They wanted to make sure that they got it taken care of. So they get out there. And they find out that the fire wasn't even near the drip tanks. It was up on the ridge. But some other workers came down and said, hey, the fire's under control, but you guys really need to see what's laying out there on the western edge of the, of the mesa. So Doug, like I said, he had he had, uh, had six strokes and was telling his story extremely slow, but he seemed to be mentally, he was 100% there. He was just slow in yeah. his delivery, but he knew what he was talking about. Well, now what he says makes Ken Farley's interview kind of start to make sense because Doug also said there were two police officers there. Oh. So now they got two people, people that said who that didn't really know each, each other. Each other, yeah. Because remember, the one, uh, Ken Farley wasn't from the area. Mm-hmm. Um, but there might be a sign here of, of him being seen by Doug because Doug said that he pretty much named all of the locals that were there, but he did say that there was a couple of people there on the outside that he didn't recognize. That very well could have been Ken Farley oh. and, and uh, his friend. Yeah. Because, like I said, they weren't from there, so that would make sense. But of the two police officers, he said one of them was from Cuba, New Mexico, and the other one was a local. So now they know, and, and, and they're in the process of still right now trying to figure out who this other officer was because at the time Cuba and New Mexico only had two sheriffs or two deputies there uh-huh. so it's going to be one of the two yeah so they're in the process of trying to figure that out there was also a, a local there and they only had three police officers on the force there so they're in the process of trying to figure that out but now they got two different eyewitnesses who don't know each other saying there were two police officers and this one that was actually able to tell you where they were from oh so that's that's kind of an uh, an interesting uh, twist on that he also noticed that, you know, there seemed to be some very well-dressed men there that almost looked out of place. And then when I hear that, it makes me think men in black mm-hmm. type situation. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, that's a little bizarre. So now we got Fred Reed. And Fred Reed passed away right after the interview, <laughs> as per most of the other ones. But Fred, uh, he was actually sent there to do cleanup. That's what he did. His job was to do cleanup type of stuff. But usually when they were sent out, it was for plane crashes. So that's what he assumed that it was. But later, Fred was actually told by a friend of his that the crash site was actually a flying disc Mm -hmm. that it crashed up there. So he's going by that. In 2000, he was contacted uh, by the farmer. He actually contacted the Farmington Daily News and wrote a letter of what he remembered. So he was actually telling them basically the same thing everybody else is telling us what they've seen. So with all this being in, 
it looks like that Frank Scully's book was actually approximately about 85% correct. The one that was considered to be a hoax. Mm -hmm. Now, after talking to all these people, the Ramseys have talked to, uh, Steinman's book where he talked to all these different people, him and Wendell, it really is starting to look like with all these declassified um, articles and stuff that they were showing that it looks a lot more like a cover-up than a hoax. Well, I think it's amazing that all these people they interviewed... It's almost like they what they've said, they've been holding in for years and years and years. And it's like after the interview, it's like, oh, thank God. You know, I said what I needed to say. You can kind of move on. And you can move on and die. And that's terrible to say that, but that seems like a weird, you know, that all those people have passed away right after their interviews. So, but that's very interesting, too, that what all has been found out. Yeah, because, I, I mean... And if you listen to, there's a lot of stuff out there by the Ramseys on uh, YouTube and and mm-hmm. uh, other podcasts, and they're they're pretty fascinating in, in what they cover. I mean, we didn't touch the surface of the details they oh go into. I, I touched on the finer points. If you watch, there's a video out there of of uh, uh, Scott Ramsey actually showing all these some or at least some of these declassified yeah. documents and reading into it. It really looks a lot more like a cover-up than a hoax. Mm. So I think, even though I said I was on the fence in the beginning, I think I've pretty much talked myself into believing that this happened. Yeah. I mean, it surely sounds like it. I just, I don't know how these people do that, hold all that information in, or you can't leak it out, or you can't breathe a word. I mean, how do you live your life? I don't know. With all that information. Well, it's like, and one of the things I remember hearing Scott Ramsey talk about, and this is one of the first things I actually watched on him, which was like earlier in the week. He was talking about that the people who were doing the cover, or not the cover, the cleanup. Mm -hmm. They were talking about comments like, we did a lot better job on this one than what we did in Roswell. And stuff like that, because... The Roswell deal, obviously, it leaked out, and there was articles in the paper about this was a crash, and then all of a sudden, oh, it was a crash, then it was a weather balloon, and and yeah. so then all the controversy, that's why you know so much about Roswell, right. is because everything that came out, where nothing really came out about this one, and for people to be pretty much bragging that we did mm-hmm. a heck, heck of a lot better job. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they just kind of maybe let, let it slip or something. There's no doubt in my mind that, that there's aliens. There's no doubt that there's been several cover-ups by the government. I mean, we've covered the Rendlesham Forest, which I think is a prime example of so much evidence out there in the yeah. cover-up. Uh, you know, how much goes into it. I mean, do I believe they found all these bodies? Do I believe, you know, the you know they're holding these bodies at all these different Air Force bases and Area 51? I don't know to 100% what I believe the level is. But there's no doubt that they found down aircraft and have covered it up. How do they keep those? I mean, I wonder if their bodies are different. They How do they preserve them? Oh, I'm sure just like anything else, probably yeah. cryogenically. So they're probably frozen. That's so interesting. And it's the freakiest thing not to know what all actually goes on in this world that none of us have a clue about. It's like I said, we talked about it before, and I think I talked about it in, in this interview coming up with uh, uh, Chris Christopherson. Um it's not Chris. Uh, Rob. Rob Christopherson. But Rob wrote Me and Bobby McGee, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know what? I wish I'd have done this interview with Rob after the fact because I would really yeah. love to have had what he said about this um, situation, his beliefs and stuff. Cause we didn't cover that when he just gave me the idea. But 
he didn't tell me whether he believed, not believed, or yeah. what it was. But I would have loved to have talked to him about mm-hmm. his thoughts. But we do talk about a bunch of other uh, different situations that I think will will fascinate you. So while we're on that subject, uh, let's go ahead and listen to Rob Christofferson uh, from Our Strange Skies. All right, we got a uh, fellow Dark Myths Collective um, podcaster on the line with us, uh, Mr. Rob Christofferson. I'm not going to say Chris. I'll say Rob Christofferson, even though every time I go to say your name, it always comes out Chris. Uh, <laughs> and Rob is host of Our Strange Skies, which is, in my opinion, the best UFO slash alien, uh, I guess, podcast out there because I've, I've made it clear on the show several times, Rob, I'm the, I'm just really not usually that much into the whole um, space exploration or uh, the possibility of aliens or even the big stories, Roswell and um, Reynolds from Forest and all that. We've done some shows on them just because I know people like to hear about them. But I guess to me, it's I've just accepted the fact that they're all fact that it's just not that big a deal to me. Um, so what what's your thoughts on just in general people that have my kind of uh, attitude or people who don't believe at all in UFOs? I think one of the most amazing things about the phenomena itself is that for one, when we talk about ghosts, we talk about Bigfoot, we talk about these weird esoteric experiences. We have boxes that they fit into, like comfortably. Like ghostly phenomena fits into a box. So does Bigfoot, whether you know you have different theories on it or not. The UFO phenomena doesn't really fit into as neat a box as we'd like it to, because you, for one, we don't know what's causing it. We we don't we don't have a clue, uh, and we have so many different hypotheses to try and expound upon it that uh, it, it's really crazy, and it's it's one that requires a lot of open-mindedness too and 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 the thing is is like when you talk about like the 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 ghost people don't get, get along with the ufo people and and they don't get along with the bigfoot people it's it's kind of a weird thing because we're all in the same area but it's for whatever reason this this topic is tough for people and um perhaps it's because uh this topic has largely have been pushed by the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which is, hey, aliens exist, or at least that's what that narrative pushes. There are others. But uh, I think people have a tough time with the thought of extraterrestrial life for whatever reason. And you know, and I think that, yeah. I was going to say, I don't get that either, because I think you got to be pretty egotistical to think, that we live in a universe as big as what what this universe is. And to think that we're the only type of life out there other than, you know, there's people out there to say, oh, I think there's life, but it's amoebas and parasites. And I just, mm. you know, to think that we're the only type of beings walking around, intelligent beings, I think is completely ludicrous. That's I guess that's why I'm not so fascinated with the subject is because I just take it as a given that there's got to be other uh, uh, living beings like us out there. 
Yeah, and 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 that's the that's the narrative that uh, you know the hard sciences pushes is like they believe in extraterrestrial life. They just don't believe that it's visited our planet. And I think that definitely that definitely you know pushes back against this idea that well hey maybe aliens are flying these ships and they're coming into our atmosphere and 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 showing themselves to us. But again, that that also. Uh, goes to the point that we really don't know what this is. Like uh, most people will jump to that conclusion that oh hey these are these are aliens, but well maybe this is the government. You know uh, maybe the government's built this stuff and, and these are all secret government tests and and you know there are plenty of conspiracies to deal with that end of it. And then you have people like John Keel who in the seventies the guy that wrote the Mothman prophecies was putting out there. That hey maybe these are interdimensional beings and they're showing up uh, and in these craft but maybe they're not 100% a physical thing maybe some some of it's a psychic kind of phenomenon so you have a ton of competing hypotheses and not one of them really agrees with the other and yeah that's that that's the tough thing with this field is that. Nobody can agree on anything, and a lot of people are closed-minded to other people's hypotheses. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mention that because on the subject of what we you just touched on, you know, there are some people out there, and I, I, I talked about this with Steve Cole, the uh, um, one of the Bigfoot experts from Destination America, and I thought he was going to flip on me. He got so irate about the concept. <laughs> that Bigfoot could be aliens. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. sure I'm sure you've heard that uh, that theory before. That's why they don't find any bones. That's why they don't find any of this. What's your theory on that? Do you think that there's any anything at all to a possibility that Bigfoot or Mothman or these other uh, cryptids that people see could be actually aliens? Definitely possible. Um Earlier this year, uh, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, he put out this great little short uh, documentary called uh, Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. And uh, a lot of stuff has happened in that area, most famously the, the Kecksburg crash of, of 65, in which uh, uh, practically a, a whole town witnessed an, an acorn-shaped object just crash in the woods. And, of course, the government came in and uh, took it. And, you know, it was this whole thing about a government cover-up and everything. But uh, one of the stories that was told in that documentary was about this farmer on his land. And he had seen some lights out in his field. And he goes and he sees, like, a, a an object in the field. And coming out of the object are these really weird-looking Bigfoot. And they're almost not even walking. They they seem to be like hovering. <laughs> so um, there are definitely weird aspects that with people that have these sightings of Bigfoot that aren't always talked about. Um, for instance, uh, there are people that report that after having an encounter with Bigfoot, they'll see flashes of light in the sky. And, uh, like, green flashes of light. And, and that never gets expounded upon. Um, there are other uh, 
phenomenon like that associated with those. So it it could be possible. I mean, when you think about Bigfoot too, there's like that camp that that notices these things, whatever they are, are kind of built for the terrain. So maybe they are terrestrial. Then again, maybe they're not. <laughs> it's tough to really say. Way to way to uh, take a stand there. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> But you know, it's funny that you say that because there are some places where there is all that phenomenon going on at, at one time. Like you said, Chestnut Ridge is a prime example, and that's an excellent documentary, by the way. And I can't remember the other documentary he did before that, but it was also very good. He did, he does a really good job on yeah. uh, on on yeah. what he does. He gets pretty in depth. But you know, then you look at Skinwalker Ranch, same situation out there, uh, at least similar. I mean, where you've got you know. Bigfoot, you got possible aliens and UFO sightings, and you got this and that. A thousand, you know, shapeshifters, everything going on in these certain locations where it just seems to uh, breed uh, paranormal phenomena. And, and, you know, so it does make you think that the possibility that something could be going on that ties all of it together to extraterrestrials to me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's. It doesn't hurt to be open to it, and there's the, and that's the the tough thing about this is there's no 100% evidence to actually, you know, support that. But hey, there are these weird, odd things that pop up from time to time. Like nobody can really explain those flashes of light. And I had a I had a conversation with John E. L. Tenney about this about. Um, how when certain things are covered like Bigfoot sightings or like alien abductions, there are certain oddities that people fail to include because they either don't make sense or uh, they don't have a place to fit them. Uh, like for instance, in some alien abductions, people talk about aliens wearing out of period American clothing, like uh, modern abductions, and you, there's a guy where there's an alien wearing clothes from the 1700s. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> could be worse. Could be from the 1970s. And uh, oh god, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine if they are intelligent life. They're not wearing anything from the 70s. I couldn't imagine getting <laughs> anal probed by somebody wearing some bell bottom jeans and a neighbor jacket. <laughs> but that's just me understandable i i can totally understand uh for me it would be uh the 80s and those like uh flock of seagulls hair hairdos i don't think i could uh i don't think i could handle that <laughs> look i got a couple of other situations that that some people like to tie with alien abduction that i want to get your uh, uh thoughts on what about all these mysterious disappearances in state parks and i understand Obviously, it's a state park. People are hiking. It's vast terrain. It's easy for people to get lost. But there's been a lot of people that just disappear and then show back up and have no recollection of where they've been. Sometimes they're naked. Sometimes they're, you know, what are your thoughts on, mm -hmm. on how that ties together? Well, the the strange thing about the the missing 411 kind of stuff is that you really don't have ties to the uh, abduction phenomena, really, other than the fact that these people just go missing. There's never usually any correlated UFO sightings. Um, and, they, it, and, and it's just so weird because they just disappear out of nowhere. Like, there are more connections to things like Bigfoot taking them than there are 
UFOs, but I, the the parallels are there and they're and and they're fascinating because it's just where where do they go? Um, and I've seen a lot of interesting theories coming out. People talking about, hey, maybe these people are walking into portals. Maybe you know they're being like the early. Um, if when you read Dave Politis's books, the early sightings, there are these weird encounters that these people have with shape-shifting creatures of some kind. So maybe they are extraterrestrial. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, yeah, that's that's the one odd thing about that phenomenon is that there really is no UFO data that that really comes in behind it. I think in some cases it it's, um, fits more into like time slippage. And mm-hmm. that was brought up my next question. Do you feel like people who experience time slippage, is that more of a portal type situation to you? Or does do you think that's got something to do with uh, an abduction and just being put back at a later time where, you know, you'll see a lot of times with these abduction stories where, uh, we just disappeared, and I think we were gone for twenty minutes, and it turned out to be seven hours. You know that those type of situations. Do you think there's a tie into that? Very possibly, because when you talk about time dilation and how people experience it, it's it's as if time itself is removed, and and given how we experience time on this planet, it's very linear in fashion. You can actually just pretty much take chunks of time out and uh, it can make some for some really strange and odd feelings and memories that you're going to have about it so that that correlated aspect is is definitely fascinating and it definitely connects there you know so it definitely opens up that possibility that hey maybe maybe there is that whole abduction aspect that whole alien abduction aspect that plays a part in this are there other creatures that can somehow manipulate time, not just extraterrestrials? You know, maybe interdimensional. It's it's a, it's kind of a really fascinating aspect to the whole thing because when you talk about the guys in Rendlesham, they, that that is an actual documented case of time dilation because they they correlated it not only with the watches that they were wearing but also. Uh, when they came out, they were about to go in because they were supposedly in there for two hours on that first night, uh, Penniston and Burroughs. And they only thought um, that I think like 20 minutes had gone by. So that that is definitely one fascinating aspect to it is like these craft – uh, and sometimes when people interact with them, how are they able to slow time down? That's that's a strange thing. Well, see, that's the kind of things that I love about your show is because the, the, the type of stuff that we're talking about is are the things you cover in the show. Uh, mm. so like I said, you know, it's it's not always uh, specific to, oh, let's just talk about this one case. It's it's occurrences and, and how these occurrences have affected people in general, not just specifically. Um, before we get too far in, because we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff, tell people about your show, uh, how they can find your show and what you hope to accomplish with it. What, when you set out and said, Hey, I'm going to do a podcast on this. What was your vision on putting out? For me, because I started, uh, with paranormal investigations about 10 years ago, it just, 
I, I headed in that direction and, and I kind of made it to a spot where I felt like I plateaued. And then I started looking into the abduction phenomenon and, and the UFO phenomenon. And those things were always in the back of my mind because I grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries as a kid. And like for whatever reason, those cases kind of just stuck with me because uh, they were they were always just so strange. Like with a haunting, it's it's strange in the moment. And and it'll definitely stick with you for a lifetime. But it was just so weird how uh, these experiences could fundamentally change a person to the point where uh, some people end up losing their jobs or quitting their jobs because they talk about this stuff. So I was a part of a couple of different podcasts um, late last year that ended up falling through. And I was just, yeah, you know, I enjoyed doing it and... I was like, man, what what the heck can I do? You know, I I want to keep doing this. So slowly over time, I started to put together the Our Strange Skies podcast, which is kind of my search for what this phenomenon could be, how it influences not only our our culture but our our country as a whole, like. We, we talk about – we have like Mothman Festival and Roswell has a festival and all this stuff. It, it has a big impact on our society and that's something I've always found fascinating. And how does it affect people in, in an individual way and in that larger sociological perspective? So that's what I hope to bring to this podcast and, and, and tell some interesting stories along the way. Um, Right now, you you can definitely find us on on every single uh, podcasting app and platform. At this point, we're uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, just search for our strange guys. So, uh, yeah, that's really what I'm hoping to bring to this thing. Is is baby? Just look at the even just the 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 personal human perspective on how this how it affects us. Because it really is so fascinating. So to give an example of the stuff you cover on a show, I actually got this from your show because I didn't know uh, before this. But, you know, everybody's familiar with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, mm -hmm. But you actually went in depth, and I don't expect you to go completely in depth because people need to tune into your show and listen if they want all the details. But kind of cover briefly the different types of encounters, first encounter, second encounter, third encounter, and and give us an idea of what those actually consist of. Sure. Um, so Jay Allen Hynek is the the guy that we get the close encounter scale from. He he was basically studying this phenomenon from the ground floor. He he was in when this became a hot a hot button issue in 1947. So over the course of time, he develops this close encounter scale, which uh, is it's this really interesting scale designed to uh, categorize certain sightings. So you have the close encounter of the first kind, which is basically the sighting of an object within 500 feet. So for an example of this, probably the most famous close encounter of the first kind would be the, the Phoenix Lights case of 1997 
where hundreds of people saw this boomerang-shaped object with lights on the bottom of it uh, over the course of two states from, uh, I believe it was Arizona and New Mexico, all the way, and it ended up going down into New Mexico. And the thing was, is like even the governor of Arizona saw this thing, and at first he tried to downplay it, and uh, he had this really hokey press conference where he had one of his <laughs> yeah. staffers dress up as an alien. <laughs> and uh, years later, he recanted and he said, no, I saw this thing and I, I it, it wasn't anything uh, that our military had. So that's a close encounter of the first kind, just seeing an object usually within 500 feet, but I would say a thousand feet would still account. And even uh, with the New York Times article that emerged uh, in December with uh, these military personnel having uh, encounters in the air in, in fighter planes with them, those would be considered close encounters of the first kind as well. And then uh, you get to the close encounter of the second kind, which is when there are traces detected or left physical, um, and even psychological. So, for instance, uh, if if you sight an object and, say, your car ends up stalling out, well, maybe the craft caused that. That's a close encounter of the second kind. Um, you sight an object and your dog just starts barking like crazy. That's That would be considered a close encounter of the second kind. Um, Astonishing Legends did a great uh, two-part episode on uh, the Delphus Ring, which is one of the most fascinating close encounters of the second kind type of cases. Um, so, yeah, just any uh, – when an object leaves some kind of trace, that's a close encounter of the second kind. And close encounter of the third kind is is the most – is probably the most fun one because it's a – close encounter where you can see uh, beings of some kind. <laughs> and uh, even when J. Allen Hynek designed this scale, he had so much trouble with this one because he just, he had trouble accepting that people were seeing beings of any kind associated with UFOs. But there were a couple cases that ended up, you know, convincing him that, you know, well, this, uh, this is, this is more plausible than maybe, you know, he first accepted. And the, uh, my favorite case of all time, uh, Lonnie Zamora, he was a cop with the Socorro, New Mexico Police Department. And one day, uh, it's uh, late afternoon, he's pursuing a high, uh, he's in a high speed pursuit with a car just heading south of town. And all of a sudden his attention is caught. He hears this roaring sound. And he thinks it's the uh, mayor's old dynamite shack that's about to blow up. <laughs> so he ends up uh, driving towards it because, you know, that's a smart move. So he um, drives down this uh, old dirt road and he sees at first what he thinks is a car overturned. And then uh, as he gets a little closer, what he ends up seeing is that, no, this is an oval-shaped craft that is landed. It has landing platforms, three of them. And there are two humanoids walking around <laughs> outside. And uh, eventually one of them sees him and is, is pretty much startled. And they get back in their craft. They lift off and they just 
you know, get, get away from him as quickly as possible. And, uh, that's one of those landmark cases that's hard to ignore because, uh, either you have a terrestrial object or it's a non-terrestrial object. There's no other possibility at this point. So any kind of, <laughs> any kind of, um, Beings associated with a craft is what we consider a close encounter of the third kind. And then the most frightening is the close encounter of the fourth kind. That's when the aliens need to back up a minute because they're getting a little too close. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they're taking you out of your car or out of your bedroom and uh, they're they're bringing you up into their ship and they're subjecting you to medical tests and, and a bunch of other freaky stuff. And, uh, uh, the best documented cases of course are Betty and Barney Hill. They, they, uh, and what's so fascinating about their case is that they started to document it themselves before anybody else got involved. And which, which is good. This, that's, uh, you know that's good uh, investigation techniques for anybody who has a sighting. If you wanna, if you wanna dive more into it, start investigating it yourself. That's definitely uh, a, a landmark case. And then we have uh, the Travis Walton case, which is, despite all its flaws, is probably the best documented uh, abduction case that we have because it was witnessed by, you know, six other people and. Um, they couldn't find him for five days until he just shows back up uh, miraculously. And what's so interesting about his case is that he, he doesn't think he was abducted for the reason that most people think they're abducted, for medical tests or anything like that. He thinks he was abducted because he decided to get out of his truck while, they were, while him and his coworkers were heading home. They spot this object in a field. He gets out of the truck, he goes underneath the craft, and he gets shot with a beam of light. Well, it knocks him back. Uh, he appears to be knocked out, and then he's taken by the craft. And what he believes is that the reason the craft took him is because it was it may have either severely hurt him or may have, in fact, killed him, and that they brought him up there to actually heal him. So... That's no, that's always a fascinating aspect of that case, and it's definitely one that I think still stands the test of time, even uh, even despite some of the flaws during the investigation. So let me ask you this about that case. That's uh, obviously the uh, uh, the movie uh, what is it, Fire in the Sky, uh, yep. was based on that. How accurate do you think the movie is compared to the facts that are out there? Travis definitely had his issues because if you uh, if you read the book, <laughs> it's not as scary as the movie makes it out because like it's so weird about the movie is like most of it's from the perspective of his coworkers and then you get to uh, where they find him uh, he, he's at a, he's at this payphone and then you start to relive his uh, his encounter. And it almost starts out like the Matrix because he's in this kind of pod thing and in a room where there's a bunch of other pods. And then he gets out and he starts walking down this hallway and then these greys just throw him onto a table and shove something down his throat. <laughs> he, Travis, uh, he didn't like the depiction in that movie, but um, that's probably the only issue he really had with it. So... 
that's yeah that's the thing i, I don't think it's a 100 percent uh you know a clear depiction of it because uh for a long time the narrative in in um hollywood when it came to these kind of movies is like no these things are bad these things are here to hurt you i mean you from from war of the worlds you know the day the earth stood still even though that's that's kind of your more peaceful example of it but uh the the thing, uh, most alien movies depict aliens as being hostile, you know, and and uh, maybe that's not the narrative we need to go for, and maybe it's starting to change with movies like Arrival. But, um, yeah, he, he wasn't too much of a fan <laughs> of that depiction. All right, let's switch gears for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned before you did some paranormal investigations, and we love to have our guests tell us uh, some of their personal paranormal stories and uh, I had you kind of head and think about it beforehand and pick pick a one or two of them out. So uh, what have you got for us tonight? So the, uh, the, the case that has affected me most, and, and this is one that we, we basically, we had new investigators. I, I'm, part, I've, I'm still part of a group in, in central New York the Adirondack Society for Paranormal Research. The the kicker is is that the uh, it's not located in the Adirondacks. It's located in Central New York, and we do zero research. <laughs> <laughs> so we were uh, we were training some new investigators one night, and we decided that we were looking for this one area, and it was supposedly just a, a, a flat farm field of some kind where this guy had supposedly murdered his wife and child and his spirit could be seen dragging their bodies through the field. Like every everybody in the area had stories about it, but nobody knew where it was. So we went looking and going down all these back roads and everything, and, and, and we just couldn't find it. And we stumble across this one cemetery. It's really literally down a back road dead end road that, uh, you know, doesn't get a lot of traffic and it's a relatively new looking cemetery. I don't think there was a grave marker in there that was older than like 1975. And it was huge. Like it it had a lot of, you know, area left to, you know, bury people in and stuff. And like when you pulled into it, you had a good like hundred yards before you even made it to the headstones and everything so we're driving that night in a uh it's a red pontiac sunfire and uh we get there we get out we get our equipment on and all of a sudden we just start getting hits like uh we had k2 meters going off like crazy our emf detectors were going off and like amateur idiots we just (laughs) walked away from it and decided to go and do it in the cemetery because Ghosts don't hang out by the car. Well, of course they not. hang out in the cemetery. <laughs> so we're in the we're in the cemetery for about an hour, hour and a half. We don't get anything. There's the, nothing there. Uh, one team ends up going back to the car um, for I, I think they wanted to grab another piece of equipment. Turned on their meters. Hey, guess what? They're going off again. Think they'd stay there? No, no. This is amateur hour. We're going back out in the cemetery. Um. So we investigate for maybe another hour and then uh, still didn't get anything. We switched up teams at one point too. 
Then the guy that I was with, we were just like, well, the meters are going off by the car. Maybe we should go over to the car. Like, well, might as well. <laughs> Nothing else is happening. So turn on the meters. Sure enough, they start going off. So we just stand there for a few minutes. Figure why the heck not. Nothing else is going on. And then they stop. Okay, that's weird. We move forward again, and they start going off again. And then they stop. And then we keep going around in circles around the car. And we keep following whatever this thing is around the car. And it keep doing the same thing. So we had a ghost box on us that night. And I'm kind of sketchy about the ghost box. It, it, results are kind of mixed. But uh, we got good results that night. We, um, we set it up on top of the car. We had a, a voice recorder like down towards the back end of the car. So it actually recorded it at a at a decent volume. It wasn't too overwhelming. And we kept asking what the spirit's name was, and it kept telling us three times. We couldn't make it out uh, when we were in the cemetery because it was just uh, – you really needed to hear it through headphones. But uh, we kept getting this – we knew we were talking to somebody because we kept getting the same name over and over again. And uh, so we talked to the spirit for a while. and And then eventually we just – packed up because uh, it just it just kept walking in around the car which was really weird and uh we did we listened to the audio we we figured out the spirit's name was jeff and he said it three times and uh we cataloged the evidence didn't think another thing of it and then about two months later we were uh there's this uh fall festival that we would um that we would uh, have a table at and we would, you know, try to drum up investigations. And uh, where it was, it was actually in the Holbert house, which uh, if if anybody's watched uh, Haunted Collector, they would know that uh, John Zaffis actually went there and removed whatever item. I don't remember which one, but the place is still mad haunted to this day. <laughs> but um, the uh, lead investigator pulls me aside and says, hey, you remember Jeff? I was like, yeah, I remember Jeff. He's like, well, we figured out who Jeff was. And I'm like, I was like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah. Um, so there was a guy at, uh, named, uh, I don't remember what his last name was, but he had ended up committing suicide at the end of that dead-end road. And um, they kept asking around and, and asked, well, why would they be interested in a red Pontiac Sunfire? And uh, the person that they asked, well, he, they said, well, his daughter had one just like it. Oh. So, yeah, yeah that's uh, – that, that case is kind of it, – it, it's one of those cases that it just – everything fell into place, like, uh, in, in, in ways that you don't often see with um, – with investigations like that, it, it, it's still something that I think about often, you know? Well, I mean, it's, uh, those things have a way of sticking with you, first of all. So I, that definitely doesn't surprise me. Uh, Rob, I'll be honest with you. It's been fun having you on. I could have you on for another hour because I've still got <laughs> a thousand different things that I'd like to ask, but I know you got things going on and um, I've got things going on, unfortunately, but we're definitely going to have you back on in the future to maybe get into some specifics on uh, some of these famous cases. Like, you know, 
I don't want you to touch on tonight, but you can give me just a yes or no answer. I've always felt like the Hill story would have gotten more play if they weren't an interracial couple at the time that this happened. Uh, because, you know, you're, back when, uh, what was this, the early 60s, mid-60s? When that's yeah, 1961. 1961, yeah. and being an interracial couple was not the thing to do back in the early 60s, and I think that really hindered getting their story out. I think their story gets more play today than it ever got back then or being taken more seriously only because of that situation. Do you have any thoughts on that? I I think that probably does play a bit of a part, um, and uh, <laughs> especially with the way that uh, uh, John G. Fuller covers it in the book. Yeah, that's it's it's definitely a, a part of it for sure. Yeah. Well, brother, I appreciate it. Tell everybody how they can uh, catch up with you on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, uh, I am on uh, Twitter. My personal Twitter is at your UFO guy. Um, the pod, yeah, like I said, it's on Twitter at our strange skies, uh, Instagram, uh, at the same handle. Um, we have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash our strange skies. And we also have a Facebook group called in gray. We trust a group for those that look up into our strange skies and, uh, we post all sorts of cool stuff over there. So, uh, yeah, uh, come find me. <laughs> I appreciate it, Rob, and, and I appreciate your support on our show. I mean, you've been supporting our show about as, several months back, about as long as I can remember. Uh, so I was, oh, yeah. I was excited to see you come up with your own show, and uh, it's fantastic. So if you guys are listening to this and you like this, this is a really good representation of how his show flows. Um, so that's uh, if you like this, you'll love his show. Go subscribe to it. And I got got a feeling that you'll be in all of his groups before too long and interacting with him on social media like we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. I, I greatly appreciate it. Oh, it's no problem. Like I said, I've heard you on a couple other shows. Uh, I know you were on um, – um, why am I sitting here drawing a blank? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think you would know. I've, um, I've been Sam, on Sam so show. many of them. Sam Fred. Yeah, not alone. <laughs> not alone. I drew a blank. I had it earlier, and I forgot to mention it. No, uh, I heard you on their show. You did a fantastic job on there. And uh, thank you, sir. Uh, so yeah, and it's you know we're we're lucky that in Astonishing Legends, um, just had Chris Cogswell on. We've had Chris on. Um, I mean, you're doing other stuff. As far as Dark Mist Collective, we've got some pretty good UFO guys between you and Chris. So. Um, <laughs> It's it's phenomenal, and like I said, it's not always the most fascinating subject to me until I get into the stories, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got another hour's worth of questions to ask, so I guess I, I really don't know what I find interesting or not, but <laughs> I think the subject alone is not interesting, but the details of specifics are interesting, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when a, when a guy tells you the story of, hey, I traded this water with these aliens, and they gave me pancakes <laughs> well, I mean, well, and, that's and just a great story <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'm sitting out in the middle of the road showing them um yeah <laughs> all right brother i appreciate it like i said uh, best of luck in, in in your future with the with the podcast it's going to be huge i know what it. it's already taken off uh so just keep keep it going man and if we can be any of any help we will be i appreciate it thank you so much thank you sir 
See, Rob is really fun, and he really knows his stuff when it comes to. Yeah, uh, he sure does. What is it? Ufology? Yeah, that's what's called ufology. Mm-hmm. He knows he knows the stuff, and so you need to check out his show. It, it really is a fun show. And while we're on the subject of checking stuff out, we have our two live shows coming up. One is just outside of Cincinnati in Milford, Ohio, with uh, Mysterious Circumstances with Justin Rimmel. And, of course, we've got the boys from Ohio, Nick and Rob, coming up. And we are down to, like, the last 20 tickets on that. What is that? So April 14th mm-hmm. in Milford, Ohio, 730. It's at a Roosters up there, so if you like wings, they got great food. It's going to be a fun night. So if you need to get your tickets for that, you can go to any of our uh, sites and and get the uh, link for it right there. Sounds but, great. But I'm going to repost it uh, probably tonight or tomorrow because I know it's been a while, so it's probably been buried. The other live show we got is Selling Out Extremely Quick. That's the Waverly deal that we're doing. That is April 28th, two weeks later, in Louisville, Kentucky. We have sold out the first 50 Waverly tours, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, 7.30 that night at April 28th, Saturday. And then we've already started working on the 9.30 tour, which Tracy and I are going to go on. And we've sold, I think, almost 30 tickets there. So there's only about Good. 20 tickets left. The live show earlier that night is going to be between, or not between, but it will feature us. It has uh, Mike Brown from Pleasing Terrors and Diana Denise from uh, History Goes Bump. That is going to be a super fun show. That's at 4.30 on that uh, that Saturday, the 28th. And I think we have 12 tickets left to that. Yeah, you guys so, buy some tickets. Yeah, I will, po- I will post a link to that. I mention this every time, but if you're coming to the Waverly tour of the actual that you bought your tickets from Waverly Sanatorium, that does not include tickets to the live show. So if you're wanting to come to both, you're going to need to get your tickets to the live show because seating is limited. Like I said, we've only got 12 tickets left. Okay. Oh, so give that a shot. And the very last thing, we've got all of our new gear, our new logos, which uh, people seem to really like. New sweatshirts, hoodies, uh, T-shirts. We have four new designs. That's four, right? we got the, uh-huh. the funky red, the funky blue, the teal, the green. Yeah. And yep. purple. It's five. Five designs. So all kinds of cool stuff. Go check it out, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. And if you want to hear a bunch of our um, episodes on our bonus episodes, you can also find the link to our Patreon right there on our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. Or if you just want to make a one-time donation to the show, like some of you do on occasion, you can do that too. So And don't forget the iTunes reviews, which we absolutely love. Absolutely. Next week's show, so much fun. We talked to you guys about possibly doing a reboot of some of the older shows that Ricky and I did, and we have decided that we are going to start this off with a redo of Bobby Mackey's. Yeah. So we've been there enough to where it made sense for this would be, probably be the first one. Uh, we just took a, a listener who came down to visit us, Jackie Getz. We took her to uh, Bobby Mackey. She got to meet Bobby Mackey and uh, listen to him perform. And then we got to take a little mini tour. It's about a 30-minute tour. It's not like the, the one they do during the day. But the one that they do during the day is about a two-hour tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, a group called Gatekeeper Paranormal does that. There's three of them. And they're going to come on the show Tuesday night and actually interview with us about all the experiences they've had while they're doing the tour. So oh, we'll tell fun. you the stories, but we'll also have some inside information uh, about it. So it should be really cool. So look forward to that. Guys, we love you so much. We will see you next week. Love you guys. Have a great week.